This is Steve Smith at WCG Patient Radio. WCG focuses on the ethical, safe, and efficient conduct of clinical trials. These podcasts highlight transformational opportunities of value to patients through awareness, access, and participation in clinical research. We're speaking today with Christopher Gantz, who has built special programs that help his hospital connect with minority communities to increase engagement and access to better health care by those communities. Christopher Gantz is the Senior Director of the Regional Liaison Office at the Sidney Kimmel Cancer Center at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. Since 2005, Christopher has worked on multiple clinical trials projects with recruitment goals ranging from 500 to 10,000 participants. He has gained experience in implementing all operational components of a research project and is leading the initiative to develop services that will reduce the burden of study recruitment across the Research Institute. Mr. Gans has an MBA and Doctor of Business Administration. He has also built programs that help his hospital reach out to traditionally underserved minority communities to give them access to enrollment in clinical trials. Hello, Chris. Hello, Steve. Tell us about the Sidney Kimmel Cancer Center and Thomas Jefferson Hospital and its mission and how that relates to the programs you've built there. Absolutely. So the, the SKCC, as we call it, the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center, uh, is, a, is a very robust cancer center. It's, it's one of uh, 30 in the country that are NCI designated. And uh, their mission is, is to provide cutting-edge uh, cancer research to the community and, and advance uh, cancer care. And so the, the way that that interacts with my mission or the mission of my office is that we are, we are focused on engaging the community, which is a core component of the SKCC's mission. Uh, it's engaging the, and educating the, the public about their role in research and the, 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 the way that we move uh, research and breakthroughs forward together. How did you come to be involved in this work? My my sort of path to to be uh, involved in this research started uh, from my earliest uh, experiences with research and, and recruitment and retention of research participants. Uh, from my, the very first study that I worked on, I found that it was very difficult uh, to meet the rec- recruitment goals of the study. And then as I moved on through my career, I found that it wasn't just that early study that I worked on. It was generally sort of a, a, an issue that that many many researchers face. Uh, in sort of making sure that their studies are successful. So I worked to develop dedicated re, uh, resources that could be used to, to kind of alleviate that problem. So I really, you know, focus on ways to engage the community and develop a, a, a systematic way to, to reduce those barriers to recruitment and retention. So it, it's very true that um, when patients can get into a clinical trial, they often are getting access to a medication that they very desperately need. And the clinical trial is the only place they can get that medication until the drug is approved. And some of of them need the trial now. So it's wonderful if they can get access to a medication that's going to help them. Um, But a lot of people report having difficulty finding a clinical trial or connecting to it. And then we have the whole problem of a lot of underserved minority communities that are underserved in general in healthcare. This is widely talked about um, in medical circles these days. So tell us about 
something you call the dedicated recruitment core. I understand you have a unique model program for reaching underserved minority communities that involves establishing a, quote, honest broker, unquote, network. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about it. And you're right. I think that the the problem is twofold. It's it's both that the the community has trouble finding studies that they may be interested in or may be relevant to them, and then investigators have uh, trouble connecting with the community and sharing information about their studies. So early on, I realized that if we centralized a service, if if we had one group instead of sort of many studies trying to to solve the problem independently. Um, that we could centralize things and that we could really think through the process. And you mentioned the honest broker mechanism, and that's that's a key component uh, of the dedicated recruitment model. The idea being that uh, if you were an investigator and you want to connect with a population um, that you might not normally have access to, that you could work with us as the honest broker who would reach out to that community, uh, to the, those members of the community on your behalf. And in that case, if the, the, the individual is interested in participating in your study, they could contact you directly, and then you could enroll them in, their in your study. If they weren't interested, you would never know that that person was contacted. So we act as sort of a buffer in between the, the, the community and the study team. Um, and then if the person doesn't want to receive future communications, they can also opt out through us, and then they won't receive future communications about research. And what we do with that model also is that we reframe the ask. Uh, so, you know, oftentimes you'll see in a communication, the study team, they want to make it sound very exciting to participate in the study. Um, and it's not always necessarily an exciting thing to participate in a study. You know, there's a time commitment, uh, there's the logistics of getting there, uh, and, and sort of all the different things that come with participating in a study. So we take a step back and we work with the study team to develop marketing materials or recruitment materials that that sort of you know reframe that that ask as really what it is and it's a partnership between the 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 members of the community and the study team you know without members of the community participating in studies that study doesn't happen research doesn't move forward so we we do try to 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 spell that out in the communications and that's a much more powerful message i believe that resonates a lot better um, and we've had really great success uh, with this model that we've been working on. We built it out originally, uh, I built it at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and now we are taking it to the SKCC, and then other places across the country are also adopting uh, a similar sort of framework, such as uh, Stanford University. So it's it's been really great to see this this model grow and this sort of different way of engaging with the community. How do you leverage resources across the institution uh, and then also across external communities um, to make this work for the advantage of patients? Yeah, so so again, so having sort of the centralized resource allows us to to be more targeted in our approach. And so oftentimes we see, you know, that there may be groups that are working to recruit the very same population, but they have, they don't know each other. So they're doubling their work or tripling their work as different studies are trying to recruit the same people. And that members of the community might be getting bombarded by multiple messages. So we stand outside of that group. We sort of have a high level overview of the studies that are going on and can help to coordinate that and sort of reduce a lot of that redundancy and maybe find opportunities for teams to collaborate. Uh, and then in regards to, to working with a community, um, so 
study teams can sometimes be really good at, at creating uh, connections with community members or community organizations, but you know they they may have to to uh, step back from the involvement they have with that community organization as the the needs of the study change or as the study ends that that relationship may fade. So you often have study teams sort of, you know, reinventing the wheel, reinitiating contact with community groups, and then, you know, having that that fade and 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 be reinitiated. So what we're able to do is maintain longstanding relationships with community organizations and community groups, and that way, it's not a fresh start every time a study team wants to come in. So we can say. You know, we have a study team that's very interested in, in working with you or partnering with you. Doesn't mean you have to work with this group, but you know, would you at least hear them out? And in a lot of cases, because we've maintained a relationship with them and they know us, that they'll at least listen to what the study team has to say, and then they make decisions about whether they want to support that study or not. Um, but it's it's been a really effective tool too for for keeping people engaged and also for disseminating information about the results of study teams, which also is something that that sometimes get lost. So as a, you know, members of the community and community organizations participate in a study, they're very interested in learning the results of that study. And sometimes the, the opportunity to, to communicate that information back to the community uh, is, is a loop that doesn't get closed. And so we're, we're able to make sure that that happens. I can imagine that helps you the next time around that you've had that relationship where they actually got that, <clears throat> that um, results back. Um, to the community, so they, um, because communities sometimes complain about the fact they didn't get results back, and that certainly doesn't help next time you're trying to recruit. That's absolutely right, and it, it really does create more of a partnership dynamic in doing that. And and yeah, it's it is key. I think about that, you know, in in my own life, working in research, I've often participated in a number of studies, just sort of you know working down the hall from a study team that might need someone uh, to participate in a study. And I think about the number of times that I never heard the results of a study, and it's 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 a different difficult sell to say, hey, we're, you know, you're very important to us. We really need your help. And then not close that loop, you know. And and it's it, it's the next time that person might be asked to participate in a study. They might they might pause and think, well, you know, I'm not really finding out what's happening. You know, the you know, it's it's not really, you know, I don't know what the results are. So that is something that we definitely see as a as a challenge that needs to be addressed, and 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 we're able to do that by having a dedicated model. So in this time of COVID, we have a lot of um, global headlines about U.S. cities and how ethnic minorities have been especially hard hit by that disease. And then that brings out the story that's um, well known in healthcare that there are many underlying health conditions in higher prevalence in minority, um, low income minority communities, especially, um, not only COVID. Um, and that these underlying health conditions um, add up, and there's, it's quite a complicated health picture, and one that also includes a lack of access, lack of being invited in. Uh, for, for good health care, a lack of being able to access it, reach it, or find it. Um, is this a situation that your programs are designed to improve? It absolutely is. And and so certainly COVID-19 has, has highlighted these challenges. Um, but they were certainly something that we've been working on uh, since, since sort of the inception of, of our group. And so, you know, engaging, it, it's interesting. We, we actually had the opportunity recently to connect uh, with a local high school. And we, we do work with different high schools and their STEM programs. 
and that is that is one of the 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 ways that we actually see an uh, an opportunity to create a paradigm shift in the way that that uh, both our organization and the community thinks about research. So in that that uh, so that that idea or that approach that we're taking with a, in the high school level is that we're going in and uh, creating a, a sort of a pipelining program which would create opportunities. Uh, for members of underserved communities to learn about research as a potential career path. And uh, so, so we're, we, we plan on having uh, students uh, intern with us. And the, the, there's sort of a, uh, there's a multiple uh, benefit to, to the work that we're doing with these schools. So we, we think that one, we can highlight research as a career. And, you know, certainly I didn't know uh, that research was a career uh, until uh, probably after college, maybe during college is where I first learned about. So we can allow them to learn about it earlier. We can also educate them about uh, the importance of research and the challenges that are faced by the community. So even if they decide that research as a career isn't uh, worthwhile for them or something they want to pursue, they know the value of research and they will grow up to be individuals who understand the fundamental importance of participating in clinical trials. They will also communicate that message out to, to other members of the community and act as a resource and be able to educate people. And, and, and that really is, is one of the most powerful things because you know, as compelling as any argument that I may be able to make, uh, really hearing it from someone else who in the community, a friend, a, a family member, a loved one, uh, that, that clinical trials really are valuable and important uh, is, is much more powerful, I think, than anything that, that we can do sort of as, as a, you know, sending out communication or sharing information. And so that's just sort of one example of what we're doing to, to sort of engage with, with uh, different communities and sort of hopefully create a, a shift uh, in thinking about participating in clinical trials and raising awareness as well. You know, one of the challenges that I think across the board is that oftentimes when you engage someone about clinical trials, you have to have sort of two conversations. The first conversation is explaining what that means to be a part of a clinical trial. And then once someone understands that, you know, that you may get responses saying, I don't want to be a, a guinea pig. I don't want to be experimented on. Um, once you explain really what clinical trials are, then you can have that second conversation about participation in the actual study. And one of the goals is to to share information, educate the public so that you don't have to have that initial conversation so that someone can make an informed decision. Uh, you know, they can decide whether they want to or don't want to, but at least they'll, they'll understand sort of why they're being asked. That, that, yeah, that's so wonderful. Young people are such an influencer in a community and uh, other influencers um, are institutions that are not medical or clinical by nature. They may be churches, they may be barbershops, they may be um, grandparents. There are all kinds of different influencers and there's a lot of awareness to build. And then you want the community, of course, to be advocating for it within um, the community. So young people, of course, are the, the, the people getting the fresh education and the hope for the change in the future. So that sounds like a really important program you have. Tell us about the special language and culture program that was adapted for research. Yeah, thank you, Steve, for bringing that up. That, so that's, a, that's another great um, success that we had that, that I'm really very proud of. And that was something that uh, when I was at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, 
we realized that, that they had created a really amazing resource and they have a, a language services bank uh, in-house uh, so that uh, if, if a physician is treating someone who's not a native English speaker, they can they can set it up so that that someone who speaks that language will be present uh, for that clinical visit. But we realized that 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 did not cover research visits. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, seemed and that seemed like a missed opportunity because investigators who might want to use a translator uh, were then uh, told that that they could use a, an outside vendor and that that vendor would charge their grant. Uh, so that might that might uh, disincentivize people to use that translator uh, if they didn't have the funds available to do so. So myself and the, 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 the woman who created the Language Services Bank, a woman named Gabrielle Janicek, uh, and then a few other key people within the institution, we got together and, and worked to create a really compelling argument why that should change. And uh, we took that to leadership uh, at the time for the hospital and the research side. And uh, to their credit, uh, they were able to, to enhance the resources or increase the resources so that we were able to expand those uh, language service translators uh, to cover all research visits, which really opens things up. And that's, that's work that we're also looking to do at, at uh, Thomas Jefferson University. I know other places are, are doing similar work as well. And the idea there is that our research population should match our community population, our catchment population. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and one of the ways that we do that is making sure that, that people who may not be native English speakers uh, have equal access to our trials uh, that anyone else might have. So um, how have these programs, the, all these programs you've described, been received? How have they worked? Tell us about that. Is there a metric for what the catchment looks like and how well a hospital is or is not reaching that type of population? Sure. So, so the 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 really great thing about uh, the 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 way that the catchment area is looked at is the catchment area is considered uh, the the people who live within a, a certain radius around the hospital um, that that serves that community. So it's not just looking at uh, the patient population. Um, that you know the, the SKCC they they look at at the actual demographics and the the the, the population information for all the people around there. So the idea being that you want to serve the community regardless of whether those community members are necessarily uh, being seen within the hospital. You want to engage people. You want to make sure that you're supporting the community. And I can tell you that that uh, working at the SKCC has been uh, an amazing experience. I know that you've, you've spoken to other members of the SKCC, like uh, Dr. Edith Mitchell, and, and, and seen the fantastic work that she does. Um, and that's, yes. that's really been uh, a remarkable experience to see the, the, the deep level of commitment uh, that exists within this institution of, of engaging the, uh, the, the catchment area and the community. And it's, it's been great to build out these resources uh, within that, that structure. Yes, I know that um, um, I've, I've heard that clinical trial participation in the underserved African-American community has climbed from um, a much too low percent compared to the catchment area who, who lives around there and uh, mm -hmm. to a much higher percent. And it's that what's important, I think, for the public to know is that when solutions are implemented, um, these things can improve, that these are not hopeless situations and there are places like Thomas's Jefferson Hospital that people can look to to see what works. 
Yeah, but thank you for saying that, Steve. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think, you know, it's, and it's just, it, it, I, I've definitely seen in the past few years uh, an increased uh, sort of dedication to, to this work across the country. Uh, and that's why I was excited about having the opportunity to talk about this today, you know, sort of sharing this message, uh, sharing the information about the, the model that, w that we've uh, created and really, you know, uh, making ourselves a resource for, for any other group that might be interested in uh, sort of doing similar work or even, you know, uh, engaging and learning about the, the work that they're doing. I think the more that, that we engage and the more that we talk about, you know, different approaches and, and, and uh, sort of different best practices, uh, that we can really create a, a shift in how, how research is, is done. Uh, I like to think that we're, this is sort of the the golden age of recruitment. You know, we have so many resources and so many opportunities to engage with people um, that I, I think if we're, we're smart about it uh, and really thoughtful in, in how we do it and create sort of these long-standing relationships, it really will create a, a change and, and it'll be a very different uh, research landscape than it was just even a few years ago. That is wonderful. Um, Chris, thank you so much for your collaboration and for being willing to share that um, wonderful information with others. And thank you for speaking to us today. Steve, thank you for, for giving me the opportunity to, uh, to speak with you today. I really appreciate it. We have been speaking today with Christopher Gantz, who is the Senior Director of the Regional Liaison Office at the Sidney Kimmel Cancer Center at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. Special thanks to our executive producer, Lauren Osmore, our technical director, David Fogel, and production team, Isabel Andresen and Roxana Gilford-Blake. Goodbye, everybody.